When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Here it is. Another beautiful Sunday morning in South Texas. Uh, Pretty cool, pretty darn nice for uh, this time of year, this time of year being mid-May. And I think just about all of us got a really good rain yesterday, yesterday morning, early, like really early before the sun even came up. So uh, we're just sitting there looking out at a beautiful day. Grass is turning greener, and there is so much to do in the yard, in the vegetable garden, with your houseplants. Uh, that's what we're here to talk about for the next three hours. Don't dial right this second, because Rosa and Joyce and Angie and Kay got in line in front of you, but we'll have a line available for you very shortly, and uh, lots of things to talk about, but of course, the most important is what is of interest to you, so let's just get started. Good morning, Rosa. Good morning. It's a beautiful morning. You're right. Oh, isn't it, though? Yes, it is. Well, I have two questions this morning. Uh, We were pruning a tree out in the yard and noticed that there were millions of little holes all over the tree. And so then we started checking the other trees, and they had millions of little holes. So we were talking to someone. They said it's a beetle that's doing that. Now, are the holes in the leaves or in the trunk of the tree? No, in the trunk, on the branches. Okay, yeah. And this is probably uh, either an elm tree or an ash tree? It's oak tree, a cottonwood tree. It's on all the trees. Okay. Um, It is a little beetle. Uh, Normally, the trees outgrow the damage. Uh, The trees are probably stressed. They're stressed from up until recently. It was so dry. And you need to check the base of those trees and be sure that that root flare, that that base is exposed, that they don't look like a fence post coming up out of the ground. Does the new growth on the trees look healthy? Do the new leaves that came out this spring look okay? It looks like it. Okay. The tree is probably not in bad shape. If you wanted to, you could spray the trunk of the tree, not the foliage, but you could spray the trunk of the tree with a mixture of orange oil and water, and that will actually go through the bark and kill any beetles that might still be underneath, but I really doubt that that's necessary. Trees do this when they get a little stressed, and uh, as long as you keep that root flare exposed, as long as you give them, if we go for a month or two without good rain, you need to give them a good thorough soaking, but the new growth on the tree tells you what kind of health the tree is in right now. If that new growth is looking good, I don't think you really have anything to worry about. Okay, and if it's not, I'm not outside right now, so I don't know. (laughs) Well, take a look and see, and you can always call me back if you have further questions about that. But it's a little beetle, and it's very, very common. But like I say, it's most common on trees that are stressed. And the most common cause of stress is having dirt piled up around the trunk. And this could have been done by the builder. Uh, The tree actually could have come from whatever grower it came from buried too deeply. But it's just real important that that bottom area of the tree, that you actually be able 
to see where the trunk flares out, where the roots begin growing outward from it. So check that. If you don't see that, start pulling the the soil back until you find that root flare. Leave that always exposed to air, and your tree should do just fine. So it can't kill it. And what kind of a beetle is it? Uh, it's uh, There are several different ones. This is not the typical borer, which uh, actually lives just directly under the bark that does all the damage. I believe they call this a powder beetle or something like that because they tend to push out a lot of sawdust would be my guess but uh, there are so many different kinds of beetle in fact 150 years ago Charles Darwin made the comment he said the good lord must have had an inordinate fondness of beetles because he made so many of them <laughs> so there, there are too many to know exactly which one so you don't think it's going to kill the tree then as long as everything else is good, as long as that root flare is exposed, I, it certainly should not be, be that serious for the tree. Okay, so how much orange oil should I put in the water? If you're going to spray the trunk, you put about six ounces, six jiggers of orange oil to a gallon of water. And oh. uh, it, it might burn the foliage, so don't get it on the leaves, but you can just spray that up and down the bark of the tree. Oh, wonderful. And just one more question. Uh, is it too late to put up the card for the webworms at Tetragrammaton? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. It's still a good time to put it out to stop the webworms. Oh, wonderful. Well, I think that's it for this morning. Thank you so very much. Thank you for calling, Rosa. Have a wonderful Have Sunday. A great day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. Next up is Joyce. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Bob. And before I... I'm sorry? No, you haven't mentioned it, but are the garden girls assisting you this morning? The garden girls are, I think we've had enough employees come in that they're out looking for a little more attention than I'm able to get them sitting here at the desk. But uh, they'll be back in very shortly. They they told me to uh, put any hard questions on hold and they'd help me with them in a little while. Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> While I'm thinking of it, Roberta asked me to tell you that she has the corms of the green oxalis that you've been looking for. So let her know when you're coming by, and she'll have them here for you at some point. So I just a little personal note that. there. <laughs> Very I'm good. I'm doing that next week, then. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Well, like your caller says, he doesn't have problems. He has issues. I think I have an issue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I should have dealt with. It's only one thing, and it's about a ficus. And there are two of them, but they have very different situations, but the end result is probably the same. So I'm just going to attack them one at a time. And what okay. it has to do with is that they are in pots that have grown through into other soil. Uh-huh. And it's not in the ground. I had them sitting in larger pots and they've grown into those pots but here's the deal one of them is a very very old situation i uh, i bought this thing maybe 15 years ago from a, a bonsai nursery uh-huh. and it was a, a trained bonsai not a show thing but for me a really pretty plant you know that kind of thing right and i had it for many years and two years ago is that what it is now when we had that quick cold snap that stayed cold for two days and froze. I remember. I remember. Well, it was in front of my uh, house there and on the ground, and when I wanted to move it, it had grown into the ground so much that I could not really move it, so I wrapped it. I thought, well, it wasn't well enough, and the plant froze completely. 
and being an optimistic gardener, I refused to pull it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> to see if there was, since it had grown in the ground, or there's anything that would come back on it. Nothing did on the main plant. But about eight months later, one little sprout came through all of that base and that uh-huh. structure. And I was pretty sure that it was part of the plant, and it, it was. And it's been that way now for, what, two years? And it's now grown about a foot and a half. Oh, by the way, I did take it out of the soil. I cut the pot loose, set mm-hmm. it in a large clay plot pot that was bigger than, and this was a, a big pot because it was originally in about an 8 by uh, 12 ceramic bonsai pot. Okay. So it okay. was cut off at that level. And then I set it in another pot with some soil in it to see if I could develop this little thing. I didn't cut back the main structure because I found it really pretty and let it decay mm-hmm. naturally. So yeah. it, it's a, quite a setup. I don't know whether anybody else would like it, but I do. <laughs> so it's now about, uh, it grows up through the structure, which is about 12 inches, and then it has a nice little canopy forming on it. The whole diameter, or uh, yeah, the diameter is not quite half an inch now. And I can I want to cut it back and develop it that way. I mm-hmm. wouldn't cut it back, I mean prune it back, but I can cut it by about half and still have fifty percent of the leaves because it's it's grown that much. My yeah, question that should be fine. is when and how do I have to cut it because it will take quite a bit of root off of the bottom. Okay, so um and so you have it in one pot, and that pot is sitting down in another pot? Correct. Okay. And how is the pot that it's in now still that same shallow bonsai pot that it started out in? It is. Okay, so it probably doesn't have a lot of roots in that pot. The great majority of the plant's roots are probably down in the pot underneath. So what... I'm going to tell you to do is to take the whole thing outside, lay it over on its side, take your garden hose, and just wash as much of the soil out of there as you possibly can. Basically, you're going to uh, practically make this a bare root plant because if 90% of the roots are down in that, you know, in the lower pot, it can be quite devastating to take that much uh, of the root system away at one time. So first thing we really need to determine is how much of that root is up in the smaller pot, how much of it is down in the bigger pot. And um, and at that point, we can really decide what the best approach is going to be. I'm afraid that if, uh, you know, if, if this plant is what is valuable to you sentimentally and you find that the great majority of the roots are down in the lower pot, what you're going to have to do is basically break that pot unless you can, you know, pull the plant up through the hole in the bottom, pull the roots up through the hole in the bottom, and then deal with it. If you're unable to do that, you're probably going to have to, in effect, break away that uh, that bonsai pot that the plant is in, and then trim the roots. Uh, you won't trim them, you know, if, if you just had to cut it off at the level of the bottom of the existing bonsai pot, that could be devastating, because that could be the practical 
basically all of the plant's roots. If you're able to get it bare-rooted, if you're able to get the old pot away from it, then we can cut those roots back to maybe six or eight inches in length, which still gives us a lot of the plant's root system, which should be you know, a shock, but a relatively minor shock to the plant, and then get it repotted in whatever container pleases you. But that's how I think I would approach this one. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, but I need to give you a little bit more information. I know it had not grown into the into the second pot for okay. at least until it, it was well growing uh, okay. in its new growth. It, the I can't take it out of the bonsai pot without because it's wired in at this point. Ah, uh, okay. And so I'm going to have to cut it at the base, but I do believe there's some and quite a bit of root still in the pot because it took so long before it had grown through into the second pot. Yeah, we just don't know how many of those roots froze along with the top of the plant. Uh, what I'm what I'm still going to suggest, Joyce, is before you proceed, try washing away enough of the soil in the lower pot that we can get an idea of how much of the root system is down below. And uh, I guess it doesn't. You don't really have to expose that much of the of the top pot but it would sure be good to know i mean if if you find that the root coming out of the original pot is as big as the hole in the bottom of the pot if it's as big as you know one of your fingers then i'm going to have to assume that there's not much live root tissue left above that if it is smaller if there is um you know i just would feel a lot better trying to be able to guess how much of the root system percentage-wise is in the lower pot and how much is in the upper pot. We're guessing that there's probably still a bunch in the upper pot because it grew that way for so long, but it sure feel a lot better if you're able to wash some soil away and verify for me how much of that root system is down on the bottom of the pot. Well, I can tell you this. It has two holes in the in the bonsai pot. It's grown mm-hmm. through only one. It has oh. not filled the hole, and the root coming out is not even a quarter of an inch. It's less than a quarter, maybe max well, size, then, and it's the yeah. part that's grown into the soil is fibrous. It's not uh, rooty. Then I think you're just fine to go ahead and basically cut it off at that point. Um, I would do it sooner rather than later because uh, the cooler the weather is, you know, the less shock the tree will go through. I would keep it in the shade. I would oh, not yeah. necessarily keep it in the dark, but keep it in the shade to reduce the uh, transpirational stress. But uh, I would I would do it as soon as possible before we get into typical doldrums of summertime when it's really hot. And what about making a gallon of water with a teaspoon of has to grow in a cap full of Super Thrive and spraying the plant several times a day? I think that would be fine, but I think you only need to make a pint. I think a gallon would be excessive, but uh, uh, that would that would be fine. Uh, spray it. You don't have to do it over and over. I'd do it probably daily, and I'd water it thoroughly with that mix weekly. But um, I, I I think you've got a real good chance of it coming through. Okay. I've taken up a lot of your time. The second one is basically the same, except this is an extremely well-growing, heavy plant that's done the same thing and it's going to have to be cut back. It's one of the ficuses that has that banana-like bunch at the base that they sell. I don't know whether whether that tells you anything. But it's a much heavier plant. It's maybe two feet tall, a huge canopy on it. And uh-huh. it also has grown through, but maybe a little more. 
So and what kind of pot is here? This one off, like you suggested. Yeah. What what kind of pot was it originally in? A plastic or a ceramic pot? Plastic. This one is in okay. a, a, a eight inch plastic pot. Then I so would I start can, with I'm, with yeah. Wash wash the soil away. That plastic pot you could probably cut it away easily, yes. which would be the thing to do. And then simply repot it into uh, a bigger, appropriately sized container. It doesn't have to be a huge container, but uh, again, I would do that sooner rather than later because the cooler the weather is, the less stress it will suffer. But uh, that one's going to be easy. Uh, it's just going to be some work, but I don't think there's any cause for concern there. And just a heavy pair of scissors or even a wire cutter should help you get that old plastic pot away and uh, so you can transfer it to his new home. Yes, that won't be a problem at all. I've taken a lot of your time. I so greatly appreciate the help you've given me. That is a big help, and I'm going to proceed with that. And tell Roberta thank you, and I'm going to try to see you folks next week. I'll call. We'll we'll sure look forward to it. And, and yes, the garden girls are in here helping me now, but they say they're very sleepy. So <laughs> I don't know how much help I can count on. Joyce, you have a wonderful Sunday, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. All right, back to garden. Used to be Angie and Kay and Ezell and uh, Glenn. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I am having some issues in my greenhouse beds with the little gnats, and I wanted to know how to make them go away and stop killing my plants. It's uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, Those are called fungus gnats. They live and breed in the soil. And it tells me one thing, that you're probably keeping a lot of your plants a little too wet. Uh, letting You probably need to let things dry out a little bit more between waterings. And usually that alone will take care of it. But now, if you want to make it happen uh, a little more quickly, and perhaps some of your plants just need to stay more moist, the same bacteria that kill the mosquito larvae will kill the fungus gnat larvae. It's called uh, BT israeliensis or Bacillus thuringiensis israeliensis. And you get this in the form of either some little granules that are called uh, mosquito bits or you can get them as sort of a little donut called a mosquito dunk. And what you do, you wouldn't use a whole dunk. you break maybe a fourth of it off, put it in your watering can, or you can just take your watering your can full of water and shake some of the mosquito bits into that. Let it sit for maybe an hour or so and use that water to water your plants. It will have this uh, harmless bacteria in there that's harmless to us, but it will kill the larvae of the fungus gnats. It, of course, will doesn't attack the adult fungus gnat so you're not going to see them go away for three or four days but uh, the BTI will totally destroy the larvae of the fungal gnats and that's that's a sure way to get rid of it but I I would be careful that you're not keeping things a little too moist because that's how the fungus gnats usually get started. Is that different than BT? It is different it is different from the BT. Your standard BT is a strain usually called Kerstocki or Berliners, and it kills caterpillars. The BTI right. is a different strain of the BT, which was found in a farm pond in Israel, which gave it the name BT Israeliensis, and the, the BTI is the one that kills mosquito larvae and fungus gnat larvae. So the one that kills your caterpillars probably not going to do anything against the fungus gnats, and okay. that 
one, yeah, that one is usually sold as a liquid or as a powder called Dipel. This one, like I say, it comes as a little, they look kind of like pepper flakes or like, say, you get them in what looks like a little donut about two inches in diameter. It almost looks like kitty litter. But uh, you want specifically the BTI for controlling uh, fungus dance. Okay, great. And I heard Howard and you talking about, um, or Howard mentioned that cactus made great mulch. Um, yes. Or I, make, I mean compost, excuse me. And uh-huh. I wanted to know how, does this, do the little spines, do they just compost away and you don't have to worry about getting pricked when you're dealing with the compost? Over, over, a, over a period of time. Those spines stick a lot around a lot longer. You know, there are two kinds of spines on most of our common cacti. They're those big old spines that make a big hole in you, and then there are these little bitty spines called glochidia, which are right down at the base of the big spine that, to me, the, the big spines you can just... Finger, yeah, yeah, and they do, and only way I've ever found to get those out is with the uh, real sticky tape, like Gorilla Tape or something like that, yeah. and... Uh, Again, we dealt with a lot of those in my three summers in a wildlife management area in West Texas. We had plenty of cacti to deal with. But the little spines of Glochidia, they dissolve, they break down fairly quickly. Those big old barbs, uh, they take a little bit longer. So uh, uh, let's just say if I were using much cactus mulch, I would continue to wear some pretty good gloves while I was handling it. They're going to break down, but the big spines won't won't break down. You see, cactus is about 95% water. And so the fleshy part of it goes away very quickly, but the spines definitely do take a little bit longer. Thank you so much, and I will get that mosquito bit, and I appreciate your help. Great questions, Edgy. Thank you for the call. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, Kay is up next. Good morning, Kay. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Um, When considering having live oaks trimmed, is there a better time of the year than others, like later in the year when the beetles are less active? Because I'm very meticulous about cutting and spraying, but... When you hire trimmers, they're not as particular, and they might miss some of the cuts. Well, that's why you have to get really good trimmers. The, um, <laughs> you know, in my area though, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it is a challenge. Uh, and so many of them are what we call hack, whack, and stack. And uh, I used to call them tree butchers, but a, a regular butcher once told me, "Hey, don't insult our profession." So I just call them hack, whack, and stack maniacs. But. Um, to answer your question, the um, probably a one better time is in the coldest part of the winter because the beetles are less active. The problem with Texas winters, if you can call it a problem, is we can be very cold one day and very warm the next day. So it's not a guaranteed thing. It's still best to spray as much as possible. The other thing, the other time, is if we have a really hot really dry summer, then we don't get nearly as many of the fungus mats that form under the bark of red oaks that have died. And in a hot, dry summer, there's not as much of the disease to be spread around. So uh, probably if I had to pick best times from the disease standpoint, it would be January and August. But recognize that we could have warm Januaries, recognize we could have wet 
August. And that's why I tell you the reasoning. Uh, if we can get the, the wounds only remain infectable for seven to ten days. And obviously the smaller the wound, the more quickly it heals over. So if it looks like we are in for a spell of chilly weather, that's a safe time to do it in the winter. If we are hot and dry and have been for a while, that would be a safer time in the summer. But it's still not a substitute for painting the wounds. That's an excellent question. Okay. <laughs> well, that's kind of hard to do to depend on the weather. So, well, depending on the weather, depending on tree tremors, <laughs> you yeah. take your choice. I'm not sure which is more uncertain, but um, you know, just just tell them that you're going to inspect the trees when they finish, and you're going to duck ten dollars from their charges for every wound you find that's not painted, or maybe a hundred dollars you're going to duck for every wound you find that's not painted. So uh, who knows whether they'll leave you or listen to you, but let them know you're serious. Yeah, I'll probably be there watching, so maybe that'll help. <laughs> that <laughs> that always seems to, yeah, yeah. I, years and years ago, I had a mechanic one time, and he had a car mechanic. He had a sign up that said, uh, our rates are $50 an hour. They're $100 an hour if you watch and $150 an hour if you help. Uh, oh, tree trimmers may, may feel the same way, but you need to supervise them carefully. But uh, that's a great question, and like I say, the, the safest times will be the hottest, dry part of the summer and the coldest time in the winter whenever that happens okay good to know thanks for your information it's always a pleasure thank you (laughs) goodbye south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right back to gardening on this beautiful sunday morning man i hope you've been outside it is just a pretty day warming up if the sun's out where you are part of the area is cloudy but up in the hill country i understand they're getting some sun but it's going to be a great day to be outside we're going to talk to Izel and glenn and tracy and robin and Izel is first good morning good morning bob morning uh, you're right it's a beautiful morning i've been out since seven o'clock enjoying the cool weather Trying to get stuff done early, but that's a good thing. One of the questions I have is is for my neighbor across the street. He has an area that has a patch that the grass won't grow. He's put all kinds of grass in there. Uh, We've treated it. I've helped him a little bit. We've treated it with uh, 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 gluten cornmeal for fungus and for brown patch and and everything. And so finally, I just told him, "Why don't you just put some compost on that area?" Mm Hmm and see if that helps. But anything he plants there, and it's an area maybe about eight foot by three foot, and he's got a couple of them, but there's grass grows all around. Uh It doesn't get much bigger, but the grass won't grow. What I always suspect, Izel, is that sometimes um, you will have something you can't see from the surface. There could be a big area of caliche in a lot of the area. There could be a great big old limestone rock that's down there about two inches under the surface of the ground where you can't see it. Howard Garrett actually has taken an old golf club and, you know, cut off the head and sharpened it. And he goes and uses it just probing down into the ground to see how deep the soil is in different places. And I frequently find if this is, you know, if this spot has the same problem year after year after year, if it's relatively small like that, I think it's just a 
problem with the area that for whatever reason you either have much thinner soil or you have much thinner decent soil. If uh, if you could look at a cross section of the soil in our area, you have what are called domes of caliche. And uh, you can many times, I used to be able, a uh, house I lived in a while back, you could stand up on the roof and you could stand there and you could look around and you could pick out the areas of the yard that had this big dome of caliche because grass was always yellower there. And um, so I, I really suspect that the problem is below the ground rather than being a problem with the grass itself. The solutions to that, nobody wants to bring in a backhoe and, you know, dig it out and replant it. But you might suggest to him that he think about planting some ground cover in that area, maybe some Asian jasmine or maybe something flowering like the Blue Shade Ruelli or something like that. Perhaps uh, build up the area, put a little rock border around, uh, add some soil to it and, you know, plant it with perennials or something like that. Because if it sounds like you've done everything right and the problem still isn't corrected. So I think the problem's not with the culture, not with the grass. I think there's probably just really thin soil there for one reason or another. And uh, I'd, I'd just start attacking it from a different direction. You could do something really pretty. I mean, uh, I don't know what the construction of his home is, but uh, with rock or with brick or with almost any kind of edging material, build the soil up right. 8 or 10 inches and then come back in and uh, plant some flowers, plant some annuals, plant some perennials and turn an eyesore into just a real pretty spot out there right that's what i i suggested to him so uh, I'll, I'll tell him that, that i talked to you and see see what he thinks but i have a couple other quick questions i saw okay. a i saw a, a Mex, uh, mexican olive or wild olive uh-huh. over here just north of 1604 it's at a church over here by encino rio okay. and i drove up in there and it's sitting on the field by itself just full of flowers uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I've never seen one this far north, and it, it's a mature tree, yeah. and so it looks like it's never frozen, and, and I live in Timberwood Park, and, uh-huh. and I was thinking of putting one in, in my yard. You know, it's it's just, uh, you're right. It is unusual to have a good one north of 1604 unless it's protected, you know, in an alcove of a building or really sheltered from the north wind. Um Every now and then, I think it's possible that there may be an individual tree that is a little bit more cold-hardy than others. Uh, and, of course, we can improve the cold-hardiness, spraying with liquid seaweed, maybe putting some paramagnetic rock like lava sand around the base of the tree. This may sound like a crazy idea, but you might go over and see if you can collect any seed off of that tree. Because, you know, the reason they call it Mexican olive is after it blooms, it makes that little thing looks like a, a green olive there. Uh, right. Certainly not an olive, but that's a seed pod. And just on the chance that this tree does have some improved genetics, um, see if you can grow yourself a, a seedling from that tree. I mean, when you stop and think about what Mother Nature does and... uh you know, I'm I'm not going to get into an issue about evolution. I happen to think that uh, evolution was divided was uh, was supervised by a guiding hand, so to speak. But I don't think there's any doubt that things change. But what Mother Nature would do is plant a thousand trees in a field. Throw out a really cold winter, and maybe three of those trees survived. Then the only trees that are going to grow now are going to be seeds from those three trees that were a little bit hardier. A few years down the road, we get another cold winter, and all the wimps freeze out, and the really strong ones survive. And this is how a species of tree, animal, plant, anything, how its genetics become 
uh, as a geneticist, would call it more into a homozygous state where they tend to produce, you know, seeds that are more like the parents and that they are, have some superior genetics to them. So long story short, I go collect some seeds off that tree. They grow relatively easily and relatively quickly. Grow a couple for yourself. Share a couple with your friend. In fact, grow three or four for yourself because uh, uh, when you have that that hybrid swarm as they call it some of them are going to be worse some of them are going to be better so plant yourself three or four of them and hopefully at least one of those is going to have a little bit more cold hardiness and do for you in timberwood park now if you were in south san antonio i'd say go for it their trees relatively seldom ever freeze but up where you are yeah if you can find one's a little more cold hardy you'll have a great thing going yeah, I, I I talked to a, a nurseryman in Corpa. He says uh, what they do when they get in a real cold winter, which doesn't happen often, is they put a wire mesh thing around the trunk and fill it uh-huh. with leaves up as high as, yeah. as the under. And then uh, the top may freeze, but the root system stays intact, and most of the tree yeah. trunk itself, and it goes back fairly quickly. We've, we've seen the exact same thing at the Atlanta Botanical Garden when we go over there for the gift market. They take a lot of their perennials, and they put just a cage, kind of like a tomato cage, over right. the top of those things, fill it up with leaves. It's cheap. It's easy. And, uh, uh, you know, as you know, what actually insulates is air. It's not the material, but the material right. traps the air. That's what makes the insulation. So that's a, that's a perfect thing to do. But when your tree gets to be 15 feet tall and 15 feet across, uh, it would be nice to protect a little bit more than just the lower part of the trunk. I'd like to see the whole tree come through. And, uh, yeah, but if, if, yeah, if, uh, I think it's certainly worth trying, but I think it'd be a fun experiment to see if you can get some uh, seed off that tree that you have observed to be yeah, more cold hardy and grow that. that out. Yeah, I'm gonna try. One, one more quick question. I, I, I salvaged a, a Satsuma orange tree from a building site, and okay. I had seen them many times. They had oranges, and then they went in there and tore down the house, and the bulldozer were there, and they broke half of the tree. It was only about maybe four foot tall. Okay, and uh, maybe three and a half foot tall, and I salvaged it and. Uh, I brought it home and I put it in a pot and it seemed to all die. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I, I put uh, I put uh, Medina has to grow in it. I put some of that mm-hmm. uh, that other vitamins that you talk about. <laughs> Super Thrive, <laughs> yeah. Super Thrive and all that. And today I noticed that there's about six little leaves coming out from the trunk. Okay. So I scratched Is... the trunk a little bit around, and uh, it's uh, it uh, no from the top part, not from the bottom. That's and, great. Uh, yeah, uh, they're coming out. So, what what do I do to, to keep it going? <laughs> keep on doing what you're doing. Give it a little bit more of that has to grow. Put it in good sun. And if anything does sprout out from the base down along the raft, cut that off immediately. Right. But okay. uh, sounds like the tree went through some shock and it's in the recovery room now. So you just keep taking care of it like you have. The more leaves it gets, the more often you're going to have to water it because the transpiration goes up. But uh sounds to me like you're going to have a good orange tree there in the not-too-distant future. Okay, I don't want to overwater it, so that's what I was thinking. Sure well, remember, then, you know, you have to have to think about it, but there's no such thing as overwatering, but there is watering too often. So when you water it, really flood it. If a gallon of water is good, five gallons of water is better because you want to thoroughly saturate that whole root system. The secret is don't water again until it is dried to the proper point, and that's going to depend on how sunny, how windy, how warm it is. So just feel the soil in the pot. When it's good and dry on the surface, it's time to water 
there very thoroughly once again. And you just can't do it by the calendar because, uh, you know, one week you may have to water it three times during the week. The next week you may not have to water it all. The next week you may have to water every day. just kind of depends on the weather. Okay, Bob. Thank you for your help. Excellent questions, and I'll be interested to hear how that uh, how that Mexican olive does for you. Uh, I'll let you know as soon as I find out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ezell. I appreciate it. Certainly. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, let me get uh, my last break of the hour out of the way so we won't rush it up toward news time. Then it'll be Glenn and Tracy and Robin. All right, it's going to be Glenn and Tracy and Robin and Michael, and Glenn is up first. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. How's your day going? My day is off to a great start. It is a beautiful Sunday morning out there. Absolutely. Uh, we have uh, only two left avocado trees that we grew from seeds about six years ago. Yes, when sir. When will they ever uh, start producing avocados? It takes about eight to ten years before they are, it's basically sexually mature to where they can bloom and set fruit. Um, so they're good for a very patient person but now contrary to what some people think they do not outgrow their cold sensitivity they're always going to be you know susceptible to freeze damage so even if they're 25 years old producing two bushels of avocados a year for you you're still going to have to worry about that really cold winter but i'd say you're within a year or two of having um you know having them mature enough to uh, begin producing fruit okay now i've got uh, several other fruit trees, uh, a plum and a, a fig tree, that were growing straight up and down for for several years. Now all of a sudden they're just leaning to one side. Is that a gravitational pull? <laughs> it's probably a combination of wind and gravity. Um, and, and the other thing, of course, is if a tree's getting shaded more from one side or the other, uh, it's going to lean toward the sunlight. It's because uh, a simple thing, really, is something goes on related to sunlight, so the cells on the dark side of the tree grow faster than the cells on the light side, and so it simply is bending the tree over as it grows so uh, if it's being shaded from one side that's why it will begin to grow more at an angle otherwise sometimes uh, you know what kind of winds we get in the thunderstorms now and then sometimes that can push them over a bit and uh, uh, if they don't get pushed back up or staked back up or whatever doesn't necessarily affect the strength of the tree or, or affect its productivity i've got this one plum tree that we've had for oh five or six years and it's probably right at about 10 12 foot tall uh-huh. and it it doesn't produce any fruit well most plums have to be cross-pollinated does it flower and not produce fruit or does it just not even flower it flowers but doesn't produce any fruit yeah it so needs a. so what we've done is we've put some uh flowering plants around the base that draws mm-hmm. bees to hopefully get it to you know, pollinate, but well, uh, so far that, it hasn't helped. Yeah, that that is a good idea always, but some plants are not what we call self-fertile. They can't pollinate themselves, so to speak, because the pollen, the male part of the plant and the female part are ripe, so to speak, at different times. And this is why... 
peaches and many varieties of plums, you really need a second tree in order to get cross-pollination. The bees do the pollinating, but uh, some trees just are not capable of being self-pollinated. So you might want to plant a second plum tree or get a neighbor to plant a second plum tree. You probably don't know what the variety is on this, but even having two the same variety seems to make a difference. For whatever reason, plums, uh, peaches, and a handful of other trees are just notorious in that they have to have a second tree if they're going to get cross-pollinated, which is what it's going to take to produce fruit. Now, having the flowers there is going to bring the bees in. That's going to increase the chance of pollination, but we have to have the pollen there to begin with. Thank you, sir, for your time. We always appreciate it. Well, it's always a pleasure, and I appreciate the good questions. You have a have a great uh, Sunday, Lynn. Thank you. All right, let's get Tracy in here before the news break. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have, uh, two, I have two questions. I would like to um, grow a bonsai tree, and uh-huh. I wondered if you could tell me what would be a good species for a beginner like myself and where okay. I could get something Okay. Well, bonsai, of course, is a matter of culture, and there are many different trees that can be bonsai. Um, the ones that I think that do well inside that make prettiest bonsai specimens, uh, there is a small ficus tree. It's called the little leaf ficus. Uh, there's a variegated form and a green form. They make beautiful bonsai specimens. Uh, I've seen uh, dwarf chefflera used as a good bonsai plant, and the so-called pachera or money tree. Uh, you can make a beautiful bonsai out of that. Uh, there is a uh, plant that's called an aurelia. It's uh, the warm-growing species of aurelia. Uh, specifically, there's one called parsley aurelia, another called ming aurelia. And those, those will be among my top choices for bonsai. Where would I find? I mean, I would just get those plants and make them smaller, or would I find them somewhere? It would be nice to find a small plant to start with. We occasionally get some of them in little three or four inch pots. Uh, uh, the availability just varies. You might check any, any good nursery, Rainbow or Phanix or somewhere like that. Check in with them because, uh, periodically we all do get those in little spots, uh, small pots that are perfect starter plants. Okay. And my second quick question is after the rain, how long should I wait before watering my yard? I got, let's say, an inch and a half. That's a great rain. You need to just feel the soil. It will be at least a week before you need to do that. But uh, if it's cloudy, it won't dry out as quickly as if it turns off hot and sunny. So get out there and just, you know, your index finger is the best moisture meter in the world. When it starts feeling dry down there at the base of the grass, uh, probably it's going to be a week to 10 days. But it's just we can't go by the calendar. We have to go by the soil. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, still a beautiful Sunday morning out there, and golly, it's just just been a a really nice year weather-wise. We we've had a few really warm days in there, but I tell you what, I don't remember a whole lot of May's when after we crossed that fifteenth of May, we were still having mornings down in the sixties and highs in the uh, low eighties. Uh, just be thankful we live where we do, and uh, don't tell everybody up north or way down further south because uh, it just get more and more crowded. We're going to talk to Robin to. Michael to Robert. Robin is up first. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Bob. Thank you so Good morning. much for your wonderful program. Well, it's uh, my pleasure. I'm concerned about my lemon, my Myers lemon bush. Uh, I had about eight 
tiny, tiny little lemons. It did have enough blossoms, I thought. Okay. And then several, well, I have no lemons left. They've all fallen off. They got to the size of about a pea, and then uh-huh. they just fell off. And I'm watering, I'm fertilizing, I just, it's getting at least six hours of sun a day, and I'm totally puzzled. Okay, well, it would like 10 or 12 hours of sun a day. And a strange thing happens, um, sometimes we get, uh, and, and I don't know where all the bees are, it's just we have not had nearly the number of bees, and what sometimes happens with fruit trees and with some you know vegetables and things in the garden is we get a tiny amount of pollination. I was explaining to a caller yesterday that a cucumber, for instance, or a squash, you have to have one pollen grain for every seed that would normally be in that squash. And if it gets what we would call partial pollination, let's say that squash needs uh, 400 pollen grains on there because it would normally have 400 seeds, uh, it starts to grow normally when it only got 40 pollen grains instead of 400, and then the plant chemically senses that it's not going to really be able to make much seed, so it aborts the fruit. In the case of a lemon tree, it's not going to have that many seeds, but sometimes you will get enough pollen that it activates that little mechanism mechanism that makes it look like it's going to form a fruit but by the time it gets up somewhere around the size of a jelly bean uh, then it's it's not and it's all chemical of course it's not uh not thought processes like you and i do but something tells it hey you did not get much pollination and therefore we're not going to turn into a real lemon we're just going to fall off and try again so my suspicion is that um you know, as it just didn't get enough pollination, got enough to start the fruit developing. And especially since it's, uh, uh, like I say, six hours of sun, just just really, if there's any way to give that lemon tree more sun, it's going to do better. But I'm going to go back and blame the lack of bees for what you're seeing there. Next time around, it may produce more flowers this spring. If not, next spring, get in there with a little paintbrush and just start dusting around on the inside of the flowers. You've got to do the job for the bees if the bees don't show up. Okay, thank you. That's good good information. Um, and one more question. How do you recommend um, fertilizing roses? What, what do you recommend? Are these roses in the ground or are they in pots? I have uh, a Belinda in a pot and I have Floribunda in the ground. Okay. Uh, in a pot... Yeah, in a pot, I like liquid fertilizers better than I do dry fertilizers. I think they're factor, faster acting. I think they're simply more effective. Um, in the pot, I would be looking, gosh, just a good liquid fertilizer. Could be Hester Grow Plant. Could be one of the, uh, uh, Espoma products. They make a, something that can be dissolved in water and put on for roses. Uh, the folks at Fox Farms make a couple of good liquid fertilizers. But Belinda's Dream is not a picky plant at all. Belinda must have been pretty pretty accepting of what came along because just about any kind of fertilizer will keep Belinda's Dream happy. Um, and I would be using either Medina Has to Grow or the Medina New Medina Liquid Fish Fertilizer, and I think that would get your rows in real good shape. In the ground, there are dry fertilizers specifically for flower plants. Their roses are not 
all that picky, but if you want the best of the best, look for something. Uh, Maestro Grow makes a product they call Rose Glow, G-L-O. Uh, again, Fox Farms makes a, a different dry rose fertilizer, and I imagine that uh, Espoma does as well. But uh, when you're using the liquid on your Belinda's Dream, I do it every two to four weeks. When you're using the dry on your little Floribundas, I'd be doing it about every six to eight weeks. Oh, okay, great. And as long as you're staying organic, you, you'll never burn, you'll never cause any problems. But uh, roses, you know, they have their own little share of challenges. So especially when we've had as much cloudy, cool weather as we've had, I'd be spraying all of them with some corn water tea to cut down on the black spot. And I would be spraying probably monthly with something like liquid garlic because one of the most frustrating things, there's a little insect called a thrips insect that gets inside of the buds and when the blooms open the petals are already brown on the outside edges and sometimes they're deformed and if you're going to go to the trouble of growing roses you want the prettiest roses out there so in addition to fertilizing do a little garlic spray every now and then and um uh, and a little bit of something to curl the black spot because we've sure had black spot weather this spring but uh it's worth the effort you know, I tried the garlic spray. I wasn't real successful with that, but the best thing, I've tried your spinosad soap, mm-hmm. and that seems yeah. to be working very well. And it has well. on the uh, the directions there that it's four thrips, and I was kind of hesitant, but it's working, and I'm thrilled. <laughs> well, that's what counts. Spinosad soap is one of my one of my it's my go to product, especially in the vegetable garden, because it controls so many different insects safely. I don't overdo it because spinosad, of course, can be harmful to bees. But um, if it's working well for you against the thrips and giving you pretty roses, then you're doing the right thing for your garden, and uh, you're getting the rewards for it, Robin. So you're doing a good thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. You do the same, and thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, uh, Michael is up next. Good morning, Michael. Hey, good morning, Bob. Listen, good morning. Question for you. It may not be so quick, but uh, this is something I've already done, so I'm going to get you to grade my papers here. (laughs) Um, I had a a whiskey barrel that was is uh, kind of dilapidated, getting toward the latter part of its life uh, about a week Uh ago, and so uh, had some stuff growing in it. Kind of not not a big deal. But I had this cedar elm pop up, and it grew, uh-huh. and it grew, and, and finally a beautiful specimen. And so I said, you know, as the whiskey barrel was starting to degrade and fall apart, I'm going to have to get rid of it. So I want to transplant this whole thing into the ground, the whole whole uh, not the barrel, but the uh, the contents of the barrel, uh, the root ball and everything. So I did that. Had to dig through a lot of granite. I mean, not granite. A lot of uh, well, a lot of rock. You know, after you get to the topsoil, mm-hmm. and that's okay. <laughs> All two inches of topsoil. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was that was talking about your exercise. That was good exercise last week. Got that in the ground, and now I did find out, and I knew this anyway, that the apparently the, the cedar realm tap root, big root, had gone through the bottom of the whiskey barrel into the ground, uh-huh. so it had kind of anchored it there. But I couldn't really leave it there. What an option! Because it's like two, three, two or two and a half feet above the ground. It's not going to work. Right. So right. I, I cut off that tap root pretty close to the ground. Put everything else in. Got it all done. Got it mulched. Use liquid has to grow, and it's looking beautiful. Looking beautiful. Good. A week, a week later. And so, your thoughts on on number one? Did I do it okay? There's something else I still need to do. And uh, will that tree grow a new tap type root, or or what? What do you think? Well, 
uh, cedar elm doesn't make a taproot. You know, it's always going to have bigger roots and smaller roots. Uh, it's We have very few trees in, in our area that make true taproots. Pecan comes closer than anything else, and even that's not a true taproot. So, yes, that cedar elm will develop lots of new major roots, but you're not going to really have anything going straight down. How big in diameter was this root coming out the bottom of the barrel? Oh, maybe an inch. I didn't really measure it, but ma- at most an inch. And how big is the trunk on the cedar elm? Uh, I didn't measure that either, but probably, I mean, it was kind of small. The tree is about, from the ground up now, about six to seven feet. But it's still okay. kind of skinny trunk. Skinny trunk. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, in order to uh, in order to grade your paper, I would really need a little bit more information. Um, <laughs> that's beside the point. And what what you the, how much stress the tree will go through is going to depend on what percentage of the root system got left behind and what percentage made it into the new hole. Cedar elm is a very resilient tree. Uh, fortunately, the weather has been pretty kind as far as being a good time for transfer planting woody plants the Mm -hmm. things that you could do to help that cedar elm Mm -hmm. and i'm assuming you planted it at the right depth you know be sure the root flares up at the surface but Mm -hmm. while that tree is establishing some new roots uh it will help that tree to every time you think about it pick up your hose and just spray up and down the trunk the limbs Mm -hmm. the leaves because it will absorb at this point it's still got a soft bark not a big rough woody bark it's still got Mm -hmm. a soft bark and it's going to absorb a lot of moisture directly through the bark since its root system is somewhat compromised. So, um, you know, it's it's got a very high chance of making it and doing very well, but you can increase that chance simply by giving it some supplemental moisture. The other thing that I would do uh, whenever you're digging a hole for a plant, whether it's a tree you buy in a pot, whether it's a tree you've grown yourself or whatever, when you dig a hole down into a rocky caliche soil like we have in this area, fill that hole with water when you're through digging and see how quickly the water drains out. If it's all drained out overnight, it's a good hole to put a tree or a shrub into. Every now and then, you'll get an area where the clay is so dense that it's just like a swimming pool or a bathtub. The water just doesn't go anywhere. And uh, we killed a couple of big oak trees many years ago here at the nursery because we failed to you know, take that into account. We had a very high water table at the time on part of the property. We planted a couple of big oak trees, and they promptly died. So what we did was when we brought in some new trees, we basically put the trees on top of the ground, built up a raised bed around them up to the root flare height, and that way we didn't worry about drowning the plant. So at this point, um, and your hole probably drains just fine, but any time you're digging or planting in the kind of soils we have here, it's important to be sure that the hole does drain well. Now, while you're getting that tree established, it'd probably be a good idea every now and then to go in and just, you know, stick your finger three, four inches down, however far you can get down into the ground with your index finger, and be sure it doesn't feel like it's standing in water. Beyond that, uh, you're doing everything fine. A uh, little organic fertilizer is good at any point. But this uh, just it's just applying moisture, and this is going to go on for the next probably six months. Just every chance you think about it, pick up the hose and just spray up and down over the canopy of the tree, and my suspicion is that the tree is probably going to do just fine. I'm going to delay grading your paper for six months, and we'll talk then and see how it's doing. <laughs> All right. I have been watering it like that. I've been spraying it up and down from the top to the bottom, Good. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I think the drain's probably going to be okay because in this part of the yard where we have some St. Augustine grass, 
Uh, whenever it's rained real hard, I never see a lot of water puddling there, unlike the right side of the yard where it's like a standing deal. There must be more clay in that soil over there. Well, yeah, then you so. put it in the right place, Michael. The uh, one other thing I would tell you mm-hmm. is as that tree grows, it would like to make little branches all the way up and down the trunk. Let it do that because everywhere you've got a cluster of leaves against the trunk, you've got a little sugar factory pumping nutrient back into the trunk of the tree and the trunk of the tree is going to grow faster at that point now after that tree trunk gets up to be five six inches in diameter you want to cut all those little limbs off what i do whenever i plant you know a new tree and i'm usually planting from a one gallon or five gallon container occasionally 15 gallon you know these trees are relatively small and if you want those trunks to become as strong as possible let those little side limbs come out then every winter when the leaves are off go cut all those limbs back to about four or five inches long so they don't try to make major scaffold limbs but uh nurserymen call it trashy trunk having that that leafy growth up and down the trunk is going to make that trunk a lot stronger a lot more quickly and then when it gets up to be a fair size then you go in and take those limbs all the way off does that make sense it does i remember you saying that a long time ago and i did just that with this one so it's uh, i think well, i'm doing okay on that one <laughs> you got a good memory and you're doing it right keep me posted on how it does for you will do bob thanks a lot south texas gardening with bob webster news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right, back to gardening, back to the phone line. It's going to be Robert and Larry and Trent and Bob, and Robert is up first. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bob. I know your airtime is precious, so I'll get straight to business. Susie has some abelias, abelias right. that um, the lower limbs um, grow out and down to the ground. Her mm-hmm. question is, uh, if she cuts off those lower limbs, will it force the plant higher? She would like for them to be taller. <laughs> It will give the appearance of forcing the plant higher because the top limbs will continue to grow. But cutting them off is not going to make them grow any taller, any faster. But uh, it'll look like it is. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the answer you're looking for. But, you know, it's uh, a plant has a certain amount of energy that it's going to put into growth. That energy came from the green leaves. And so when you cut the green leaves off, you're reducing the amount of energy. It's not like you still have the same amount of fuel and less places for it to go. You're you're kind of you're kind of cutting off the fuel source while you're doing it. But it will certainly you know uh, it the the top limbs will grow and the bottom limbs are no longer there to grow. So it's going to seem like it's putting more growth into the top, but uh, uh, that's <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that, right? Exactly. So you let her unless she's listening. You let her believe whatever she wants to believe, but uh, it's it's perfectly fine to cut the lower limbs off that abelia. Right. Second question is, I don't know if you have, have you seen the photo that I texted you yet? I haven't no, yet. It's we been, have a duplex. We uh-huh. have a duplex that uh, one unit is offset from the front of the other one, so it makes a little corner. Okay. A gorgeous big um, crepe myrtle there. I mean, it, it's just one of those uh, trees that has prospered by neglect because tenants just won't, you know, do a thing. I know about tenants, yes, indeed. There's no gutters on the building, and rain just pours down off the roof in, into that area. And it's basically mm-hmm. uh, kind of bare soil most of the time, except for whatever weeds grow. So what I'm wondering is, um, is there a ground cover that would be maintenance-free because tenants just aren't going to 
trim, mow, do anything, right? And uh, right. So it, it, would, it would need to be able to withstand considerable shade, I mean, almost entirely shade, mm-hmm. um, and not grow too high, and not arbor mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it, it, it's yes and no. Um, the ground cover that would fit your your needs best probably is going to be dwarf monkey grass. Uh, it's okay. dense enough that you know it'll it'll break up the force of that water growing down. It grows densely enough that it pretty much chokes out all the weeds. Um, it's a little slow growing, and no, it's a lot slow growing. It's slow growing, and it has to have some care after it's been installed. So I don't know whether that's the to me that would be the most attractive thing you could do, assuming of course that the root flare is exposed on the crepe myrtle, which I'm sure it is. But practicality, you know, a you know, inch deep layer of lava rock or something like that might serve the same purpose at a much lower cost and a much less maintenance necessary. So it it's kind of up to you. I you know, it, it, doing doing rock of some sort, I just think lava rock is a little bit nicer looking than and probably has fewer things sprout up in it than uh, some of the river pebbles and things. But if you want a ground cover, I think the dwarf monkey grass, dwarf bondo grass, whatever name you get it under would be your best choice. But I'm not sure that a living ground cover in a neglected area is going to be the best under any circumstances. Bob, thank you as always. We really appreciate your guidance. Well, and uh, a couple of black labs sitting here with me. One of them in particular always tells me to say hello to you. And, um, yeah, I will get a look at the picture. Uh, We've just been blessed with tremendous business. I mean, people are so wonderful. And so many people spending more time at home or paying more attention to the yard. So (laughs) instead of being, uh, you know, three or four hours, sometimes it's three or four days before I get to look at my email. But I will do it, Robert, and I'll let you know if I have any other thoughts. Well, I've been down to the nursery twice and missed you both times. Well, I I saw a letter coming your way with something, and so I said, oh, was Robert in? And they said, yeah, he didn't find you. And I, who knows, it was probably one of the brief times that I'd run out to pick up some plants. But uh, sorry I have missed seeing you, and especially well, Susie and uh, Levon. from your broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> who knows, but uh, I'll look forward to the next time we get together. Well, give Hannah and the other dog, which I haven't met yet, a big hug from both of us. Well, Maya, Maya is actually her niece, looks a lot like her, but uh, came to live with me when Maya's roommate, the Golden Retriever, suddenly decided that she would start attacking her. So uh, Maya got a companion, hmm. uh, or Hannah got a companion. Maya's in a better place, and Roberta gets to see her every day anyway because they both come to work with me. So our family is in good shape, and I trust you guys are as well. We are, and wonderful to speak to you, Bob. Thank you. Likewise, Robert. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Goodbye. My former neighbor up in the Hill Country, and always a pleasure to visit with. Uh, Next up is Larry. Good morning, Larry. Hi, Bob. Um, Good morning. Uh, I was on the Internet the other day. Um, All my tomato plants are pot plants. They're in Uh 10-gallon pots. Okay. so I, I kind of uh, lean toward the determinant varieties of tomatoes. Probably and, a good idea. Uh, and anyway, I was uh, just browsing on the Internet, and um, they, it brought up a topic called dwarf tomatoes, 
Now, Mm -hmm. uh, that piqued my interest, so I went on it. And uh, good Lord, there's a seed company that I guess specializes in those type of tomatoes. Right. uh, I don't know if I should mention the name of it on your air. Oh, it's it's fine. (laughs) It's fine. Uh, It's called Victory Seed. Okay, uh, I'm not familiar with them, but okay. okay. I had not heard of it either before, but I went on there, and they list the varieties of tomatoes that they offer that are considered to be these dwarf tomatoes, and Mm -hmm. a number of them are uh, indeterminate varieties, but they say they'll only grow up like four foot, and... um, I thought, holy smokes, i I got to call Bob and find out what he knows about these dwarf tomatoes. They, they said that uh, they are uh, basically the size of a determinate, but with all the qualities of an indeterminate where they produce all summer long, as opposed okay. to some of the determinants I've tried have a limited production time. Yeah. Right, and of course that's that's why they develop determinants is for the soup companies and those people that want to pick all the tomatoes mechanically and then throw the plant away and start over. Where where is this seed company located? You know, I uh, I honestly all I'm looking at is a sheet of paper that I printed out. <laughs> it doesn't have their address, but it the website is victoryseeds.com/dwarf. Yeah, and um, I was amazed at the number of varieties that they are. Oh, there, there are golly, there are such a huge number of tomato varieties out there, and uh, there are a lot. I I would tend to call them compact more than dwarf, but this is nothing new. Uh, my first experience with the patio tomato was one of the first of the hybrids that came out specifically for compact growth, continued production, and reasonably small stature. But since that time, you know, they've developed tomatoes that tend to trail. There's one called Tumbling Tom, uh, was the first of many that have been developed for people who want to grow in hanging baskets. So the sky's the limit. Uh, if you... I would be reluctant to, or I would be cautious buying from a seed company in Minnesota. I would be very comfortable buying from a seed company in Alabama as far as expecting that their varieties are going to be tolerant of our Texas heat. Because dwarf or not dwarf, the larger fruited varieties are not going to set set fruit well once the nights get hot. The cherry types, the smaller fruited types, will tend to produce almost continually regardless of what the night time temperatures are my advice is experiment uh keep good records and uh you can teach all the rest of us something about varieties but i would be asking questions and uh you know i'm i'm a call the people up and and you know ask them because most of them not a hundred percent but there's some a handful of seed companies out there they're buying all their seed from somebody else and just marketing it uh whereas some folks are actually producing their own seed or working with growers in their own area and most of them are super nice and happy to share their experiences with you but uh there are tomatoes that are bred for siberia believe it or not and as you might imagine they don't do too well in south texas (laughs) So I I would like to know where Victory Seed is, and uh, I would simply call them up and say, hey, what is your experience with a a warm night climate and uh, daytime temperatures could reach 105 degrees? And um, like I say, you can... uh, 
hopefully get some good information, and above all, keep records. And if you find three of them that don't do well and two of them that do very well, next year focus on those two and experiment with two or three others. And uh, first thing you know, you'll you'll be sharing some good knowledge with people. And uh, uh, but I'm I'm all into compact tomatoes, all for that, because not everybody has a big garden. And I, I just look at what our business has been since all of this COVID nineteen stuff has started, and so many people are suddenly interested in growing their own but a lot of those people live in apartments live with uh, limited space have to grow something on a patio and um, I don't want to deny them the right to garden because we don't have plants that do well for them so I I think there's a place for all of these varieties I just uh, <laughs> I don't like to disappoint new gardeners so I want I, I hope we can you know find varieties that will do well and uh, right now something like patio uh, is is one of the few gosh if I put my thinking cap on i can probably come up with two or three others that have been developed in recent years that i'm familiar with but i'm not surprised that there are many many varieties that are not familiar to either one of us okay uh, another real quick question is you mention often that uh you can't over fertilizer with an organic okay is that right did i understand you correctly well I would say that you are you don't really run the risk of causing problems with organic oh, fertilizers. Right. People <clears throat> excuse me, people talk about fertilizer burning and none of the fertilizers really burn, but what happens is with a lot of these synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, it causes a huge water uptake in the plants. Sometimes the water's not there, sometimes the plants are simply transpiring moisture faster than the roots can take it up, and the top of the plant shrivels, gets brown, and gives the appearance of being burned, when in truth, it's just a matter of severe dehydration. That does not happen with organic fertilizers. Uh, there are other are other negatives about the synthetic fertilizers, but uh, um, I, I guess I would be more correct if I said you're not likely to damage your plants by fertilizing excessively. I think you do get to a point when uh, you know it's just uh, the the rewards don't <laughs> don't justify overdoing it. But uh, um, there are a lot of people who, and their motto is, well, we feed weekly, weekly, meaning that they make a weak fertilizer solution and use it every time they water. Other people that don't have that kind of time will make their fertilizer a little bit more concentrated. And when we have these agents in the soil that we call cation exchange agents, uh, and this only works with organic fertilizers because their nutrient is in the cation form, which means it has a positive charge. But uh, they will feed with a more concentrated solution, which is not wasted, which remains in the ground until the plants you know, get around to using it, and uh, you could have a debate back and forth between the weekly weekly folks and the folks that want to, you know, eat a good meal and then wait a while, so to speak. And uh, I'm not I'm not going to come down on either side as being right or wrong. You simply what works for you, and that's a long answer to a short question. But that that that's the principle on which I base that statement. All right. Now the potency I call it potency. I don't know what the actual term is of an organic. Uh, fertilizer is it like five 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 or do they vary or what they vary a great deal and I tend to ignore the numbers because uh, by law those numbers are required to be on there uh, they're required to be in the same order nitrogen phosphorus and potassium but 
the the big difference is that some of these very high number fertilizers, which are all the synthetic ones, the nutrient is highly water soluble, and the plants are lucky if they get ten percent of it. If you get a twenty 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 fertilizer, your plants are lucky to get two percent of that nitrogen. The other eighteen percent washes away to cause other problems because of the ability of the soils to hold organic fertilizers through what is called cation exchange. You get a lower analysis fertilizer, let's say it's a 642 or something like that, the plants are going to get all 6% of the nitrogen, and so even though the 20% was a much higher number, the 6% fertilizer provided three times as much nutrient available to the plant and didn't cause nearly as many pollution problems. There are horrible pollution problems throughout the country with farmers putting synthetic nitrogen on their fields and then having horrible algae blooms and other problems in the waterways around but we can spend days talking about that and that's way beyond the the scope of our discussion here but i just tend to ignore the numbers i will say one further thing and that is i have never seen a sample a soil sample from this area that was deficient in uh, potassium the third number uh and so I could care less if you have any potassium in there or not. But the truth is most of the ingredients in the fertilizer are compounds that contain one or all three, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. The potassium kind of comes along for a free ride with a lot of the other products that go into the fertilizer. So I'm not... I just don't really even look at the numbers that much, so long as they're, you know, not like 0.5, 0.1, 0.1, or something like that. But yeah, uh, I, 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 I certainly a 20-20-20 is not better than a 5-4-3 or something like okay. that. Well, uh, Bob, you're a gardener's blessing. I really appreciate your show, and uh, thank you so much. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Trent and Bob and Gilbert and Fred, and Trent is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? Hey, it's just a beautiful day. I was just sending my engineer, not to make him jealous, but of the picture of my view out my window compared to his. <laughs> and we were agreeing that all the greenery and sunshine is a little bit nicer here, so my day's off to a good start. I hope yours is too. Oh, yeah, we got a beautiful day up here. Um, yes, sir. I got a quick, I got a question for you about, uh, this is my first year in, gosh, I guess since I was a kid, that I've done a garden, an in-ground garden. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Just that's a vegetable garden, and I've got uh, cherry tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, purple hull peas, and some uh, green beans planted. Okay. Uh, and, and I know I know you're supposed to. A lot of those you're supposed to thin them out when they come up, and uh, kind of, I guess, thin the herd, so to speak. And I was just, <laughs> my question was, how does one like, you know, how do I go about uh, doing that, and about how far apart do I need to thin these babies out? Well, it it all comes down really to what the plant is. Uh, beans, for instance, we leave them pretty darn close together. I rarely thin my beans; they grow fine if they're two or three inches apart. Um, okay. It's some other things. I will grow occasionally in a row, but more often in a mound. Squash, for instance, I make a round mound, and then I put about four or five seeds to one mound, and my next mound is five feet away, so I don't I don't thin 
thin those squash out. If, however, if I were growing them in a line, I'd have them thinned out where the individual plants were probably 18 inches apart or slightly more so they don't really crowd each other. So it, it just kind of comes down to what the crowding factor is going to be. Uh, okra, I would thin those plants to where they're a minimum of 8 or 10 inches apart. Um, cucumbers you mentioned, I'd like to see cucumbers probably six inches apart, but uh, it's not so critical on summertime plants. Now, a lot of our wintertime plants, and I'm talking about things like carrots and radishes, things that make a a root, which is what we eat, you have to thin those. If you don't thin your carrots to where they're three inches apart, you'll have the prettiest tops you've ever seen with no carrot underneath. And the same thing's true of radishes, the same thing's true of beets, uh, same thing's true to some extent of lettuces. But, um, you know, it, it, it's just, we, we can't say we're going to thin all, all plants to the same spacing because some of them just don't need the spacing that others do because at maturity some of them are much smaller than others so I'm kind of dancing around the subject but uh, you can tell me any plant out there and I'll tell you how far apart I grow them in my garden and uh, in most cases uh, you know if they're producing up on the top of the plant like a pepper or a tomato or something like that it doesn't hurt if they're a little crowded together but if they're producing below the ground there's simply no room for them to produce and and, and I'll give you one more example, not to belabor the point, but sometimes we don't do all of our thinning at once. And in my garden, onions are one thing that, that I'll apply that to because I believe onions should be set out as plants. And when I plant my onions, I plant them about an inch apart. But by the time they mature in the summer months, I want them five or six inches apart. But I plant them an inch apart, and then six weeks down the way, I'll go through and pull out every other plant because I love green grilled onions. <laughs> They're just so outstanding. Six inches after that, I'll go back in and pull out every other plant. The first thinning, I'm down. I'm up now up to two inches apart. And then uh, six six weeks later, I'm going to go through and pull out every other plant because these are going to be little ping pong ball size onions, which are really good for a lot of different purposes. And by doing this, by the time the summer rolls around, I've got room to leave the ones that are left. Uh, depending on variety, they may make a bulb that's, you know, four, five, six inches across. So uh, most vegetables, I'm going to thin them all at once, but some like an onion, I'm going to thin them gradually. Uh, when we go back to wintertime things like uh, radishes and lettuce and things like that, don't throw the thinnings away. They're absolutely delicious. I rinse them first, but uh, they don't ever make it out of the garden. They get consumed on the spot. Okay. Um, Does that help you? That's that's uh, a long yeah, that, discussion. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that that helped me a bunch. Uh, one last thing, uh, when I talked to you last time when I set up the garden, you told me to, you know, put my compost in and then said if I wanted to, you know, put a general purpose fertilizer in there, five pounds per hundred square feet or whatever. Uh, uh-huh. But I didn't, you know, I didn't put the fertilizer in. I was in too big a hurry. Is it? Do I need to <laughs> fertilize now, or, or do I need to to just say, you know what, I got good soil, I got good organic compost in there just let it roll and let nature do what it does that's like saying i've got a beautiful dining food dining room table do i have to put food on it 
Yeah, if you want, if you want to eat, good soil only goes so far uh, as far as consistency. It needs nutrients. Now, what I do in my garden, I put dry fertilizer on, knowing that that's going to feed the plants for two or three months, and knowing that if I get as busy as I am right now, I'm not going to have time to go back and do anything else. So, my my dry fertilizer to start with is sort of my insurance, but I would rather my plants get to eat on a regular basis. So every two or three weeks, and sometimes I do this in the dark you know i'll go out with a liquid fertilizer and follow it up at this point since your garden's in and growing i'm probably not going to use a dry fertilizer i'm gonna and I've, I've got ranch buckets that hold about three gallons each i'll just line about eight of them up i'll you know put the appropriate uh, three or four ounces in the bottom of each bucket fill it with water and then it just go slop 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 i uh it, things things get just drenched with good fertilizer solutions so you're going to get stronger plants you're going to get more production if you're able to feed your plants now there are also devices that you can hook to the hose that purport they're called proportioners that mix the water in with the water going through the hose automatically there are lots of different ways to feed but you will definitely grow a better garden if you do feed periodically now here's the one other thing i'll tell you about that because the organic nutrients don't go away any excess that's not used by the plants is going to stay when you've been gardening organically in the same spot for, you know, two, three more years, uh, there's a lot of nutrient left in that soil, and you can get away with uh, forgetting to fertilize or, the fertilize or getting a little too busy to fertilize. But you mentioned new garden, so my suspicion is it really needs to be fed. Okay. Okay. So I, I can do that even though they're just now sprouting. I can just go ahead and start oh, yeah. putting some liquid on it. Okay. Absolutely. As soon as they've got roots, they're ready to use it. Any good organic liquid would be okay then. Uh, just fine. I I tend to use Medina products because they are most available to me, but there are other good products out there uh, from companies like Fox Farms, from companies like Espoma. And it, it's interesting because whenever we travel on business, we always visit nurseries wherever we go. And it, it's funny that all across the United States, virtually every nursery now has an organic section, and it's mostly companies I've never heard of. So I can be brand specific here, but if you're my friend that calls from Pennsylvania or my friend that calls from, uh, you know, California, I'm, I'm not going to tell you because your brands out right. there are going to be totally different from mine. It's right. just the organic part is the important thing. Well, sir, I do appreciate you spending some time with me, and uh, I'm going to get after it and see if I can get some food on that dining room table. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good plan, Trent. Have a great Sunday. Okay. Thank you, sir. All right, Bob Gilbert, Fred, my next three callers, and man with a very good name is up first. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Bob. Hey, I got a <laughs> yes, sir. I always, I always say we're lucky me dyslexic and still get our name right. Great. Listen, I want to make you switch gears. I got a question about Christmas lights. Uh huh. I'm gonna put them in. I'm gonna put them in an oak tree, and I've been told by people that you better watch out because it can damage the trees. I think that's bull, but I don't know. Have you heard anything uh, about that? You're right. It's bull. It's most damaging if you fall out of the tree while you're trying to do it. And I wouldn't be driving staples and, you know, spikes and things into the tree because actually the place they think Oakwilt started was a guy nailing a basketball 
hoop to a tree. So I'm going to be careful how I attach those lights, and I'm going to concentrate mostly on wrapping them around rather than, you know, physically attaching them because we both know those strings of lights don't last forever. But there's nothing about the lights themselves. I mean, modern lights are, you know, little LED bulbs that produce no heat. Uh, trees are not going to pay any attention to whether the lights are on all night long or not. So, uh, uh, <laughs> you put up any sorts of lights you like and don't worry about it. Now, put them above the reach of animals. One of the funniest things I've ever seen delivering poinsettias around Christmas time. I saw a big white-tailed buck deer uh, that had about three sets of lights wrapped around his antlers where he'd gotten in a fight with a bush, apparently. And I wish we could have plugged him in because he would have put Rudolph to shame. But uh, get him up high enough, get him securely enough that if you're in one of those areas that has kids or pets or things like that that might come in contact with them uh, I think that's important but whoever's telling you it's going to hurt your trees doesn't know anything about Christmas lights or trees either one yeah it was something about the <laughs> pulsation of the electricity and I, I just said I, I don't believe that <laughs> If so, it's, it, you know? yeah, that's, uh, yeah, well, that, that could be a different story, but no, the, uh, EMR is what it's called, electromagnetic radiation. I don't believe has ever been shown to be harmful to, uh, to a tree. Okay. And the other question I got real quick is, uh, I've got Durante or Duarte, um, a Duranta? Duranta, yeah. Okay. Um, I've got, all kinds of offshoots. Can I dig those up and transplant? Generally speaking, uh, and I'm not sure it's Durant because that's more of a shrub, but the root sprouts that come up do not really have much of a root system of their own, uh, so probably not. If I were going to try to do that, what I would do, uh, and this would be with any kind of root sprout, I'd first of all stake, I do it when the the sprouts are fairly small, but I put a little stake to hold them upright. I move out six inches, eight inches in all directions, and I'd take my long-bladed shovel, Bill Dookie, my grandfather used to call it, or a sharpshooter or whatever, and I would slice down all the way around to cut the supporting roots. And then if that little plant wants to start putting out its own set of roots, yeah, it would be transplantable a year or two down the road. But just to try to dig those root sprouts up, not likely to uh, survive at all. Okay, perfect. Now, these, these things are about three foot tall now. Yeah. Well, I spent part of my days off cutting out damn hackberry sprouts. were about 10 feet tall that had come off the, the roots. But, uh, no, I, I, in, unless it was an extraordinarily valuable tree or something like that, it's not going to make a strong tree. Uh, we want, we want a tree with roots that really go down in the soil instead of lateral roots. So, um, I, I probably would be just chopping them out with a grubbing hole and be rid of them. Okay. All right. That answers the questions. Thanks. Very good. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. I'm about 30 seconds away from news. Gilbert and Fred, and I'll check my messages from Chris and see who's up beyond that. But uh, it is a beautiful Sunday. If you're working in the vegetable garden, you can still plant more okra. If you can find transplants, still time to plant cherry tomatoes and peppers. Definitely time to plant some more squash, some more beans, some more cucumbers from seed. I can find you lots of good outdoor projects, so uh, don't sit inside and watch TV. Get out in the garden and enjoy. Oh. All 
right, back to gardening once again. Gosh, it's just a beautiful, uh, <laughs> it's just a beautiful morning out there. Sure, hope you're going to get out and enjoy it. Uh, let's get back phone lines right away, and let's talk. I believe uh, Gilbert is up next. Uh, good morning, Gilbert. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? Morning, sir. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Fine, thank you. Just uh, back here on my porch looking at all my fruit trees and wondering what's going on here. describe what you're seeing all right well it's it's really been like the past two to three years where uh like my peach and plum grapefruit tree even apricot tree Mm -hmm. bloom uh it it looks they bloom so much that it looks like it's got snow on them every every spring okay but by within a month it's they, they all drop and, okay. and I usually just get like uh, maybe five or if I'm lucky, I get eight fruits in every tree. Okay. Uh, do you do you prune those? Do you prune those trees in the winter months? In the winter, I prune them. Yeah, I prune them. I prune them more or less in uh, every year, just a little bit. Well, see, that's that's one of the big problems is with many fruits and peaches, plums, apricots are all they simply put on way too much in the way of trying to set fruit and what i would recommend and what the professionals do is every winter they go through those trees and they thin them out in the case of plums we thin them out 50 to 60 percent in the case of peaches we thin them out 40 to 50 percent which means going up and down the limbs and literally taking out every other little side limb that comes out that limits you know that cuts the number of of flowers in half, so to speak, and you end up with a much higher percentage of uh, the fruit that forms actually goes and grows to maturity. And if we have a year that, you know, even half of the fruit is too many, we go back through and we thin it out even further. But uh, if you're going to get good production out of a plum tree or a peach tree or an apricot tree, you really need to go through and thin that tree during the winter months before it even starts to flower and you'll have a lot more fruit and a lot better quality fruit okay yeah um well i do i, I do trim them because uh i'm the kind of person that i like to treat to look almost perfect <laughs> well but see around. you're you're not you're not really trimming the tree you're going through and thinning the tree out and you're physically removing probably half of the little side limbs, not the major limbs, but you're taking out like half the limbs that would normally have flowers or fruit on them. And, uh, it, I mean, you need, you need to have a big pile of limbs on the ground when you get through. But in this case, we're not doing it in an artistic fashion. We're doing it in a very deliberate fashion to thin out the number of small limbs coming off every bigger limb on that tree. And that's probably the single most important thing that we do with the fruit trees. Now, having that root flare exposed, fertilizing, watering, all those things are uh, important, but uh, but the the wintertime thinning of the branches does more than just about anything else to give you, you know, a good fruit crop the next year. Now, uh, sometimes we have the problem, you know, of no cross-pollination, things like that, but in that case, you probably wouldn't have much fruit to begin with. The fact that you're getting fruit form, but then the great majority of it is dropping off, I think if you go through and thin the trees, you're going to have you're going to have a lot more fruit stay on the trees and mature every year. 
I had to learn that the hard way myself because I, you know, both get busy and I think, well, gee, the more the more limbs I have, the more fruit I'm going to get. But it just doesn't work that way on peaches and plums and apricots. Now, pears, that's a different story. We don't thin our pears. Apples, that's a different story, true. Uh, and it's really not that true of figs, but, uh, but peaches, plums, and pears, I'm sorry, peaches, plums, and apricots, uh, peaches and plums are probably two of the most popular fruit trees in this area. And unless you're really thinning it methodically and carefully, uh, you're not going to get nearly as much production from the trees. All righty. How about the, because the, I have an apricot tree, and it's uh, it's it's one of those uh, that I bought off the, uh, off, I think it was Walmart, and it's uh, okay. grafted. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I bought it like three years ago, and I haven't, I think this year is the first year that I got the, uh, Few, few of those little flowers on it, uh-huh. but they fell off. They also fell off. Well, apricots, many times apricots bloom too early, and most apricots have to uh, have to have a mate, so to speak. Do you know what the variety was? Was it Blenheim or Moorpark or Golden Amber? Do you know what the name on the tree was? Uh, nope, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, some varieties of trees simply do better than others. Uh, golden amber is one of the few apricots that is self-fertile here. But again, all apricots sometimes bloom too early and freeze back. But if you've got Moore Park or Blenheim, which are commonly grown apricots, uh, you're going to have to have uh, more than one tree to get cross-pollination uh uh, just having flowers is no guarantee you'll get fruit. Apricots are, are somewhat difficult to, to get production from, again, because you have to have more than one tree, and frequently they bloom too early. That's the one thing about that variety called golden amber, is it blooms over a longer period of time, which gives you a better chance of, uh, you know, avoiding freeze damage. But uh, uh, I would sure be visiting a good nursery like Fanix and talk to them about good varieties. Uh, Walmart and Home Depot are terrible places to be buying fruit trees and expecting good results because many times they have the wrong varieties and rarely, if ever, will you find anybody that can give you any actual knowledge about how to grow them. Got you. Okay. You can always call me and I'll always help you every possible way, but keep in mind we need to, uh, we need to know what varieties, we need to select our varieties very carefully because I can think of probably, oh, if I sit down to write it out, I could probably name you 35 different peach varieties, but I can only name you about five of them that are going to do well in San Antonio. But, uh, that's why I, I love this. And we send people to Phoenix all the time. We don't carry, uh, at our nursery, we don't carry a lot of fruit trees, but I've known Mike and Mark Fanick for ever since they were little kids, and uh, those guys are so knowledgeable that I'll call them periodically if I need to know something about some given variety. So I'd sure send you over there for your fruit trees instead of Walmart. I think you're going to get trees that have a much better chance of giving you good things. And they can show you. They can actually physically show you on a tree how you would go back and thin it out, teach you a little bit of that proper pruning, because it's very frustrating, as you've discovered, to get lots of flowers and no fruit. And, uh, boy, there's just nothing better than a ripe plum or a ripe peach. So uh, I want to see you get a lot more successful next year, and uh, we'll do anything we can to help you. Cool. Uh, Do you have a a website that I can ask you questions during the week, maybe? 
you know, I, I like I said, if I, I'm lucky if I get to spend five minutes in front of a computer any given day. We are so busy around here, so um, you can always you can always stop by Shades of Green, and there's probably somebody that can answer your questions. But I'll be honest with you, this spring there's always a line of people uh, buying stuff. So Saturday and Sunday mornings are your best way to track me down. Gotcha. <laughs> Gilbert, I appreciate. It's my pleasure. You get out and have a good uh, Sunday, and we'll talk again, and we'll move on and talk to Fred next, and it's going to be David and Kathy. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? Good morning, sir. It's a beautiful um, day, and I'm looking forward to it. It's a blessed day. Thank you, Lord. Um, yes, sir. I wonder if you'd give me your um, your uh, your technique for growing a beautiful phalaenopsis. I have several, and I seem to be addicted to them, but I don't know exactly <laughs> how to take care of them. <laughs> how would you... Uh, how would you fertilize these things? Okay, um, I use I alternate between uh, Medina's Haster Grow plant and Medina's new liquid fish product. But let's back up just a little bit, and um, you're probably getting most of your plants from uh, Trader Joe's or HEB or somewhere like that. Which I love to see these, you know, plants widely available. But the Phalaenopsis plants that show up in our major outlets, most of them come out of Taiwan, and most of them are started in sphagnum moss and that's not a good long-term thing to be growing phalaenopsis orchids in the people that are that are producing them they want them to die they want you to have to go back and buy a new plant every year or so <laughs> i i like enjoying the flowers but it, as soon as possible i'm going to take that plant out of its little plastic pot i'm going to strip away as much of that sphagnum moss as I can do without damaging the roots, I'm going to repot it into an orchid bark mix where that, that plant can stay for several years without any problems. Uh, second secret to growing phalaenopsis well is good, bright light. Inside, it would be almost impossible to give them too much uh, light. So they love a south window. They love a west window. They love the day when uh, Fred's going to get out and build himself a greenhouse even more. So <laughs> bright light is the second key and uh i try to i try to fertilize mine about every two weeks and uh like I say the medina uh their liquid uh products work extremely well and just uh, you know a couple more things about phalaenopsis when the flowers fade on a given bloom spike don't cut that spike off until it's turned brown and crispy because many times that that original spike may branch and put on additional buds and flowers. I uh, have a, well, had a friend. He's uh, passed away recently at the age of 90-something, but he once kept a phalaenopsis in a wire, in a wooden slat hanging basket, and that plant either had buds or blooms on it for seven years without stopping. So, um, they they are easy to grow. They are highly addictive, as you have observed. But most of the days, uh, the orchids are not purchased from other or- orchid growers, and most of them have not been grown with long-term success in mind, more with short-term success for the grower. And you know, they just treat they they expect people to treat them like a chrysanthemum or a calancho, uh, enjoy them and throw them away. 
I kind of like to have plants that grow, and every year they get bigger and bigger. One of those uh, HEB plants that I bought last year because I love the color, and I did what I said. I let the blooms, I enjoyed them for a while, then I repotted it into uh, fir bark, put it in a little bit bigger pot. And this spring, instead of two spikes, it had five spikes come out. Instead of 15 flowers, it had about 45 flowers on it, and it is just now finished blooming. So um, it is dangerous. You are going to get hooked on these things. I started in the eighth grade as a science fair project. I'm Judge Emeritus for the American Orchid Society, and my collection has gotten bigger and smaller over the years based on the area that I had to grow them. But uh, I just warn you, orchids, when you figure out how to do it, are going to become highly addictive, and you're just going to keep on seeing, well, I'm just going to have one more plant and one more plant. Don't say I didn't warn you, but uh, you're into a good hobby. But, uh, you know, it, it a little knowledge is a great thing. Um, there are a lot of books out there. I don't really have a favorite when I was first growing up and getting into them. Uh, there was a book called Home Orchid Growing by Rebecca Northern. Uh, but that covered such a wide range of orchids. I'm sure there's some pretty good Phalaenopsis books out there. And if you ever happen to be in a good bookstore or looking online, make a list and call me, and I'll tell you which ones I would consider to be good good reference sources for you. Wonderful. I think I heard you mention foliar spraying. Do you uh, recommend that? Is that good for them also? And uh, I don't. I, I think spraying with liquid seaweed or something like that is good, but I am not into uh, spraying them with nutrient. And the reason is, uh, an old friend named Rob Griesbach, uh, you with USDA, he was kind of USDA's orchid specialist for a while, and we were comparing orchids that were fed with foliar feeding and orchids that were fed with drenching, and both of them are beautiful plants. But the ones that were fed with foliar feeding tend to have a lousy root system and rob's term was he says a plant is only going to grow as much roots as it needs to support itself and his conclusion was that where you do a lot of foliar feeding the plants don't develop good roots because they don't need them they're getting everything they need through the leaves and uh, as opposed to orchids that were growing the way we grow them by drenching them with fertilizer our plants always had 10 times more roots than anybody else's orchids and Consequently, they, the flowers last longer, the plants grow better. So I'm not going to be opposed to every now and then giving them a little bit of foliar feeding. But uh, the, the more you foliar feed, the worse your root system is going to be, and that's the reason behind it. Oh, now on the Internet, they, they keep referring to having hard water as being a, a problem. <laughs> is, is that true or false? Um, it's a, it can be a problem and that it can clog up, you know, some of your fertilizer mixers and it can leave white spots on the leaves. But, uh, 80% of my lifetime growing experiences have been in areas with hard water, either in Dallas or in the hill country or San Antonio. And I grow beautiful orchids. They're not the prettiest things because I do have spots on the leaves, which I can clean off if I, if I ever have time to do it, but uh, the Internet is is not a good source of information on orchids. Sounds great, Bob. I sure do appreciate it, sir. God bless you, and have a great day. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning. We're going to talk to David and Kathy and Matt and Paul, and David is up first. Good morning, David. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm great. How about you? Not too bad today. I've got Very a good. 
for you. Uh, I've yes, got sir. An unknown, an unknown type orange tree. It feels like a tangerine. <laughs> okay. Uh, that we're dropping. We it's been off and on producing for the last three or four years. Uh, last year it produced like a half a dozen. This year it's got quite a few buds on it and quite a few fruit already, but it's dropped about fifty percent of it in the last uh, couple of weeks. And I got a Myers lemon right next to it, about ten feet, that produces like you know bushels every year. Uh, <laughs> I can't I can't give them things away. Uh, but I'm just curious: is there something we uh, we could do? I mean, my wife waters it once a week, gives a good soaking, and and those kinds of things. And they'll give you the description of this thing: it's about six feet tall and looks more like a bush than it does a tree. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But it's also it was planted like twenty years ago, so it's it's it's, it's pretty old as well. But, so I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Shouldn't have, but if uh, uh, you know that tree, every the the orange quote orange trees are not really oranges for the most part um, that do well here. I I would expect them after five years to be fifteen feet tall and ten feet wide. So that tree has been studded for some reason. It may be, as you hear me talk about all the time, that is buried too deeply. I would very definitely be pulling the soil back away from the side until you find where the the major roots are flaring out from the trunk. That's the number one issue we see. Sometimes um, a tree you know 20 years ago before it got planted stayed in a pot too long and it actually the roots started circling and girdling and every now and then you'll expose you know the lower part and you've simply got a root wrapped around literally strangling the trunk of the tree which stunts its growth and can lead to having it just snap off you know in a big wind uh what i would the place i would start is is start pulling the soil back away from the trunk of the tree. Get down to where you see the major roots spreading out. Look and see if you see any roots that seem to be circling around or pressing even if it's just kind of pressing into one side of the trunk. It will really weaken the tree and limit its growth and limit its production. But uh, um, I just now, how big when this produces fruit, is the fruit the size of a tangerine, or is it more the size of a golf ball? No, they're more like a big orange, actually. <laughs> okay, well then it's then it's not a dwarf tree. It it ought to be you know a full size tree producing full size fruit. Dig out, uh, you know, a, a arborist, a tree specialist would actually use a, what we call an air spade, which is kind of like a sandblaster without any sand, to physically mm-hmm. blow the soil away. And, you know, look at what the trunk looks like. Look at what the spread of the roots look like, you know, at the level that it should be. Because uh, something is stunning that tree. That's all I can tell you. That's that's not normal for that tree to be only six feet tall. I mean, some trees are on a dwarfing rootstock. With citrus, they use a rootstock called flying dragon. But dwarfing, in the case of an orange tree, means a 10 or 12-foot tree instead of a 20-foot tree. So something's going on, and I suspect it has to do with the root system. And if you can pull that soil back, if you can wash away enough to really see something about the uh, the basic root structure... Um, we can probably tell a whole lot more about what's holding it back. Yeah, I mean, the base trunk of this thing is only about probably three and a half, four inches in diameter. Yeah, and then, you know, it, it should be a lot, a lot bigger than that at this point. So, uh, kind of like the doctor, if we could see the patient, we could tell you a whole lot more about it. 
Yeah, expose that root flare and see what you find, and let's talk again, and uh, I'll tell you what corrective eye action could possibly be done. I'll also tell you next time you buy a good nursery and you see something like Miho or Sito or Kimbro, these are all some phenomenally good tangerine-type trees that might be good to get another tree growing because uh, they ought to be producing like that lemon. Myers lemon is just, it's a real good lemon to begin with, but uh, and I wouldn't necessarily want you to overdo it, but it'd be fun to expose a bit of the roots on the lemon and the and on the orange, and I'll bet you see a big difference. And that's to a great degree doing a count for the difference in productivity. Okay. Is there any problem with cutting out the uh, dead limbs on the Myers at, at this time? There's no problem with cutting any dead limbs out of any tree at this time. It's strictly okay. cosmetic, but it'll sure make it, you'll sure have fewer thorns to deal with, and the tree will sure look nicer, but Trimming dead limbs is like cutting your hair or cutting your fingernails. Uh, the tree doesn't even know it's been pruned. Okay. One more real quick one. Uh, miracle Grow is that a synthetic? Yes, sir. Synthetic, high phosphorus, and uh, long-term, not a good fertilizer. Okay, my wife's been using that on the bushes, so we, we, she heard you earlier say something about uh, it. <laughs> yeah, I, that's one. miracle Grow, rapid Grow, Mirror Acid. Uh, there's a lot better products on the market now than uh, than those synthetics. I'd be looking at Meister Grow, Fox Farms, Espoma. Names like that are going to be a whole lot better for the plants, a whole lot better for the environment. All right, well, cool. Well, thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. I think we'll try Good it questions, David. I'll back. All right, I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Bye. Kathy's up next. Good morning, Kathy. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. I have a question on uh, some St. Augustine grass. In okay. our front yard, we have a small section, and it's gotten really, really thin because we have really big uh, live oak trees, and it's okay. keeping the sun from coming. So is, uh-huh. do, you, do you recommend any shade-tolerant grass seed that I could just put there instead? There is no shade-tolerant grass seed. In the winter months, you can use one of the rye grasses, but in the summer months, um, there you will hear advertised. You will see people want to sell you fescue and things like that, and you only have to water it three times a day to keep it looking nice, and it doesn't ever look that nice. So um, if the area is that shady, and it's not really practical with big, beautiful oak trees to try to thin them heavily, um, if you want something green out there, if you want something looks like grass, plant dwarf monkey grass because it's much more shade tolerant. If you just want a good ground cover, oh gosh, there are a lot of different flowering and green ground covers you can plant. But no grass seed, and for that matter, no no grass out there that's going to grow well in fairly deep shade. Um, I've heard that there is a shade-tolerant St. Augustine, Amera something, Marigrass? Well, Amera, Amera shade they came out with. I don't think it's as good as Palmetto or Delmar. Those are my two favorite shade-tolerant. But I'm going to tell you, there's such a thing as too shady for even the most shade-tolerant St. Augustines. Now, you can spend $5,000 getting those trees thinned out, and you'll have to do it about every three years. But eventually... The price we pay for having nice shade is just uh, you're not going to have good grass underneath there. On the other hand, put some flagstones through if it's an area you walk, plant a good shade-tolerant ground cover, and all of a sudden you're going to find out it's a lot less work. You don't have to mow it, and it looks real nice. So uh, you're just spinning your wheels, and don't let anybody tell you. had a, a long talk with a very good friend yesterday who had been told that zoysia was a shade-tolerant grass. It isn't. And uh, if you want to look at a shade-tolerant St. August, 
Augustine, if you want to go out and buy a few little squares just to see how it does, look at either Palmetto or Del Mar. But more than anything, stand back and look at that beautiful oak tree and say, okay, you win. Because <laughs> yeah. it's... We live in Fair Oaks, and so that part of the yard is where the deer walk to the other street. Sure. Uh-huh. And so they, they pound it down anyway, so it'd probably be better just to do, like you said, like some flagstone or something there. I, you know, I, I'm a big lover of things on the ground, and uh, I love deer on the dinner table, but they're sure not very pretty in the landscape. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you so much. <laughs> You're sure welcome. Good questions, okay. Kathy. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and uh, talk to Matt. Good morning, Matt. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm fabulous. Hey, Bob, I know you like to uh, promote your sponsors, and I just thought I'd let the listeners know that I went to Just Pots yesterday, you know, originally thinking they'd be maybe too expensive, but they were very affordable. They had an amazing inventory, and they were the nicest people. So I just Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. Let you know. Glad to hear it. Hey, it's a gorgeous day, and I uh, I thought it was time to maybe propagate my six-foot uh, sun golds uh, from some cuttings, and if you'd be kind enough to give us instructions on how to do that. Well, keep your cuttings relatively short, six inches or so. Uh, take off any flowers or any fruit that's trying to set. Take your cuttings from the tips of the branches, and with sun gold, you've got plenty of tips and branches to do this with. Uh, the best medium to root them in is going to be uh, perlite, the white volcanic material, not the stuff that comes in a can to be drunk, but P-E-R-L-I-T-E. Um, simply fill a pot with perlite. You can put ten cuttings in, you know, one eight-inch pot if you like. It should take them about two to three weeks to root, and then you can either plant them directly in the ground, or you can pot them up into containers, let them grow out a little bit further. Perfect, perfect. And uh, another couple of questions, if that's okay. Um, uh, here you, uh, I know you promote uh, uh, a couple of satsumas. Uh, I believe it's Miho and Sito and another. Uh, yeah. Are, are you? Are you not- fan of the arctic frost arctic frost to me is a pretty thorny tree and it's a little bit seedier it is closer to its changsha relatives in that uh um it's you know it's the one the extension service promotes and it is not a bad tree but uh I simply find that the majority of the people that I talk to like Miho and Sito better. There's also one called Kimbro, but nothing wrong with Arctic Frost. It's just a little thornier and a little seedier, but, uh, you know, too much citrus is just enough. I live in Bernie, and we get cold enough winters that I have not, over years, I'll have citrus, including Arctic Frost and uh, Lemon Frost. I They'll live for me two or three years, and all of a sudden we go to 12 degrees, and they aren't out there anymore. So I'm reporting on the experience of friends more than my own because I'm just too cold for citrus. Right, right. And my last question is, um, in, in making the, uh, uh, the garret juice, Howard, one of, one, of, one of the primary ingredients is either compost tea or liquid humate. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you get liquid humate? Uh, you'll find it under the Medina label. It uh, is normally available. Medina uh, bottles a liquid humate, and they package a dry humate. And, uh, but Medina Agriculture, anybody that carries a wide range of Medina products, either will have it on the shelf or can get it for you. Okay, okay, I hadn't seen it. If I had a, um, I have a, actually a five-gallon bucket of humate, can I mix that with water, and is that, would that be the same thing? Well, humate doesn't truly dissolve. 
Uh, Humate is basically a a high-grade coal, so to speak. And um, what they produce, and you'll see this on the bottle, it says shake well. Uh, they do what they call micronize it, which grinds it down. Uh, and you use something called an air cyclone, a remarkable machine. And if you had the ability to, you know, pulverize it down to, you know, almost microscopic dimensions so that you get maximum surface area, you could do that. But, uh, your, your dry humate, um, is, is not going to dissolve at all. And it's not going to go in suspension very well because the particles are too big. Okay, but still good for the garden in a, in a dry form. Oh, absolutely! I use it all the time. Okay, okay. Hey, Bob, thanks so much for your uh, for your time, and uh, uh, have a wonderful day. You do the same, sir. Thank you. All right, back to gardening. Man, where does time go? Hard to believe that we've been. Two and a half hours of talking plants, and it seems like we just started. But uh, uh, next guy on the line is going to be Paul. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you this morning? As they say, better than I deserve. (laughs) (laughs) You and Dave Ramsey. I just want the life that these two black labs have lying here at my feet. They, They seem to be enjoying it even more than I am, and that's a lot. That's outstanding. Here's my question. Um, I have a uh, oak tree in front of my house. Uh, it's about 60 feet tall. Base of the, the trunk is probably three and a half diameter in feet. And the, uh, the there's a root flare that I think going up against my cement foundation on my slab foundation. Uh-huh. Um, I, asked my, I asked my mom, who do you think is going to win? The cement foundation <laughs> or the root? Um, what do I do to... Is this going to cause long-term damage to my foundation? It's it's gone flush up on a ninety degree turn, hit the foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the root is probably as big as my arm in terms of uh, roundness. Yeah, um, and it's about uh, fifteen feet away from the base of the tree. Yeah, I I'm not going to be concerned about your foundation at all. Your home's on a slab, isn't it? Yes. Okay, rather than pure and beam, and this is a live oak rather than a red oak, right? Um, I believe so. It's about sixty feet high. Yeah, and it but it it keeps its leaves in the winter and then starts dropping them in the spring. Yeah. Okay, that that's live. No, you know, if you wanted to see, if you ever wanted to actually see what happens, uh, you could get an arborist to get out there with an air spade and basically, you know, blow all the soil away and look at what that root's doing. But I've seen plenty of uh, you know ex- examples of this, and. When your builder or when a builder pours a foundation, the outer edges, they dig a much deeper, much a little bit wider trench that is called a grade beam that goes all the way around that's simply there to support the weight of the house and especially brick or rock or whatever they may have. But it would be almost unheard of to have a root that went under the grade beam. Now, it does kind of exactly like you say. It comes up against it, and then it just sort of splatters and grows out in all directions. But uh, the chances, uh, as long as the slab was properly poured, as long as your home was properly built, and I have every confidence that it was, uh, that's not going to be any problem long term. Now, if the whole trunk of the tree, which is, you know, the actual root flare is probably only 
spread is four feet wide. If that was up against it, I don't think even that would bother it. You might have real issues with soffit and roof and things like that. But I've seen, golly, I'm just thinking about we've got a gift market in Atlanta later this summer and walking around some of their massive oak trees. You'll see where the, the root flares actually spilled out over a sidewalk without disrupting it. So, uh, you know, there, there are plenty of foundation people that are going to come out and tell you you have to cut the tree down and get rid of it because uh, they want to charge you a lot of money to do it. But from what you're describing to me, Paul, I see no danger to your foundation. If you felt like, you know, you just had to do something, a root the size of your arm is a minor root to a tree that big. If you had to come two feet away from the foundation and cut it, they, even that would make a much of a difference to the tree or to the foundation. But at this point, I'm going to find something else to worry about in today's world. That's that, that's not an issue in my book. That, that That's uh, very uh, comforting. Um, and then my second question is, I've got a, a very, much smaller tree. Do you have any referrals that you recommend for tree removal? Or I, I had one that was just cut down to the stump. What's, uh-huh. what's better, you know, leave the stump or it's a whole lot more involved in taking out the root and it's near <laughs> the utility electricity box of the side of the house? Yeah, I, I you know... Um, I, I can, I can certainly tell you people that I know and trust in this business, but, um, it's strictly up to you. The trunk doesn't have to go. I, I'd never recommend, well, almost never recommend trying to dig it out. If you want to not see it, uh, there is a machine and I would have a professional do it. You can rent them, but they're, there, I wouldn't want to use one, but it's called a stump grinder that sits down on top of the stump and literally chews it up about six or eight inches down into the ground, and that will visually get rid of it. If you just need to have a tree removed, um, you, there, there's some people. I, the main thing I would, I would tell you on any kind of tree work, be sure the tree company has their insurance on their workers because if they yeah. fall out of the tree on your property, they can turn around and sue you and it can be a whole total mess. Um, tree removal is, doesn't require a huge amount of, uh, well, safe tree removal does require skill and knowledge so they don't, they don't cut it down and fall on your house. But, uh, a qualified arborist uh, I, I, if you're looking for tree problems, or if you're looking to deal with issues, I would recommend a fellow named David Vaughn to you that I think is the best in the business. And he doesn't actually do the work, but he's, he's a guy that teaches the courses that other arborists have to take to become certified. And Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N. But, uh, and, and if you ever wanted to get him to come out and look at your big oak, that's fine. But, uh, there are other people that I might recommend if you simply have a tree that needs to be cut down and removed. Uh, I'm not going to go with the best arborist in the world. I'm just going to go with somebody that can safely cut it down and get rid of it. I appreciate it, uh, very much. And one last question is, aerating a backyard, um, is that something I should be doing every couple, you know, Erosion. I've been gone for six years. I came back to property. It was a rental property. Now uh-huh. I realize that there's been a lot of erosion. To build back up the topsoil, I guess you know the usual stuff. But uh, is aeration? And I'm from the East Coast, no. where you got these plush soil, you know. But yeah, here it's yeah. All and hard. Yeah, you you accomplish. 
you accomplish the same thing with a layer of compost, and it's in effect the humates, the the natural good substances that come out of compost tend to loosen and aerate your soil. To do mechanical aeration with these little spiked rollers that roll around, um, in most cases you don't gain a whole lot other than perhaps messing up your sprinkler system. Uh, If you ever do that, you you have to use something called a core aerifier. Uh, They do this sort of thing on golf courses, and there may be places that it's necessary, but I don't think your backyard's one of them. But where you want to build it back up, where you want to improve the quality of the soil, uh, I, I would add, you know, half an inch of compost. If you are able to do so physically and financially, it would be good to do that every spring and every fall for a couple of years to really get it back to where you want it to be. But uh, uh, compost is going to be my natural aerification, not a, not a machine that's out there. I appreciate it, Bob, and I wish you a, a happy uh, week coming up. 